Let's bow together. Father, you are wonderful and gracious and merciful and kind. And you're so loving. And I thank you that you have revealed and manifest that love for us in that you sent your only son, your one and only son. And he willingly came. He died for our sins. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that it's through faith in him we have life. And you give us your spirit that we can understand your word. And I pray that as we look in your word today, we would gain insight into what you intended. That we would not just hear what you say, but by your power and strength, do what you say. So that you would be glorified. We thank you for your word. We pray you bless it as it goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you think of suffering, what do you think of? Probably a lot of things, right? There's uh, all kinds of different suffering that we might go through. Certainly the world suffers for sin and because of sin, but we as believers, we suffer not only because of sin at times, we suffer because of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And within within that suffering, things can become kind of difficult, We can be tempted within that suffering to question things. We can be tempted to uh, have our eyes pulled off Jesus in the midst of that suffering, whether it's a physical suffering, a suffering for doing what is right, uh, whatever it might be. And within those times of suffering, we need encouragement or we might be tempted and within that uh, temporarily have our eyes pulled off Jesus. And when that happens while you're suffering, that's not good. And the Lord loves us so much, he's so gracious and kind that he wants us to be encouraged even in the midst of suffering. Because as we're going to see, he uses that suffering for his glory and it's part and parcel of the reality for true believers. So with that in mind, today we're going to see how we can know if God's word is at work in us. And more specifically, we're going to see that through the, through the example of the Thessalonians suffering for Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16. Now, let me share some context. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, Luke reveals, the writer of Acts reveals, the Apostle Paul and his companions were led by the Spirit of God across the Aegean Sea to share the gospel in Macedonia. And within that, we have the account of the birth of the Philippian church. Now, after Paul and his companions were beaten and shamefully mistreated in Philippi, they journeyed some 50 miles west to Thessalonica. And in chapter 17 of Acts, we have the account of the Apostle Paul remaining there for at least three weeks. And within that, he shared the word of God with these Thessalonians. And the Jews of the city became enraged by his teaching concerning Jesus And they created a riot and took Paul's host, Jason, captive, holding him responsible for his behavior. Paul then left the city, going southbound to Berea to preach the word of God. However, the Jews from Thessalonica followed him there, creating an uprising. So Paul left that city and went on to Athens, and then eventually went on to Corinth. Now, while he was in Athens, he was very concerned about the Thessalonian church. He was concerned about the suffering they were going through, and he was concerned that the tempter might tempt them in the midst of their uh, difficulties as to their faith. And so the apostle Paul sent Timothy, while he was in Athens, to strengthen and encourage 
uh, the Thessalonians as to their faith. And then from there he went on to Corinth. And it's in Corinth that he received Timothy back and received the report, a good report concerning the Thessalonians. And it's from that report, probably sometime around the spring of 50 AD, that he responds with this letter back to the Thessalonians. Now this church in Thessalonica is only about a year old or maybe even less than that. And Paul writes them this letter. Now we saw in chapter 1 that Apostle Paul was so thankful for their changed lives, for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's so thankful that they received the word which came in power and full conviction. And then we saw that they had heard, even Paul and his companions had heard of the response that the, that the word was broadcast throughout the whole area. That they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And then in chapter 2, we saw the Apostle Paul begin to defend himself regarding the manner in which he and his companions had come to these Thessalonians. Obviously, there was some infiltration by those bad guys that Satan stirs up to cause trouble, to cause suspicions and things like that. And the Apostle Paul is defending himself, but in that defense, he reminds these Thessalonians of the manner in which they came. And he shares the motives in which they came. And he shares that they imparted the word of God and they also imparted their lives with these Thessalonians from right motives unto the right goal, which is to walk worthy of God. And within that, we came last week to chapter 2, verse 13, where we saw how it is we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul was so thankful that they received the, the word, not as, uh, not as the word of men, but the word of God, which it really is, which performs its work in you who believe. And he's talking about how God's word works in the lives of believers. And it's from this point he then shares what we will look at today, and it's connected to what we saw last week. So how do we know that God's word is really at work in us? We can be tempted when we're suffering to think, wow, you know, what's going on? We can be tempted to doubt our salvation, whatever it might be. We can be tempted when difficult things come upon us. So how do we know God's words at work? Well, let's take a look at that as we look at the Thessalonians example. Now, I want to read verse 13 also with our verses because it goes together, and you'll see that as I read through it, starting at verse 13 of chapter 2. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's what we saw last week. And then notice it's connected. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So we're going to see today that uh, God's word, when it's in work in us, there are some tangible realities that come from that. 
as we look at the example of the Thessalonians. And we're going to see that welcome of the word of God brought about temporal suffering from their own people, just like the Jewish believers received from their own people. Look at verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Our passage starts with this term for, and that's giving an explanation for explaining something about what was just spoken of. And what was just spoken of, that uh, Paul was so thankful, verse 13, I read it earlier, that God's word was at work in these believers. He was so thankful that they received it, and it's the same word that performs its work in you who believe. And then he begins to explain for, explaining what this work that is happening in your lives really is. You see, sometimes we don't understand what God's work in our lives is. We don't understand the reality of what he's doing. It may be counterintuitive to us to think that suffering and response to that suffering is God's work in our lives. But it is, as we'll see today. It is. So he says here, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe, into verse 13, verse 14, 4, he's going to explain. He's going to explain. He was so thankful for their reception of the word of God. They received it not as man's word, but God's word. That powerful word which does its work in you who believe. And then he begins to describe some specific results of God's word working in these Thessalonians' lives. For you, brethren, he's speaking to believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, how great a love that we should be called children of God, and such we are. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you enter into a new relationship, a family relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. This term imitators we saw before in chapter 1, and we'll look at that in a minute. It comes from the Greek word mimetes. We get our word mimic, mimic. It speaks of one who follows another's example. And within that, he says, you became imitators of the churches of God in in Christ Jesus in Judea. We'll look back where we did see this word earlier. Look back to chapter 1, verse 6. Let's back a few verses. Paul said this earlier. He said in chapter 1, You also became imitators of us, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. He's talking about their initial reception of the word of God, that they became mimics of Paul and his companions and even of the Lord and how they responded. And then later on our passage, he's talking about their ongoing work of the word in their lives and they became imitators of the churches in Judea. You see in verse one, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you became imitators of us and the Lord having received... Now, as we saw in verse 13 of chapter 2, there are two different words for received. One speaks of an outward reception. The second one speaks of an inward welcome, an an accepting of something. That's what this word is in chapter 1, verse 6. 
He says here, you received, you became followers of the example of the Apostle Paul and his companions and the Lord. How so? Having received or accepted into your heart, that's what it really means, you accepted it, the word, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When these Thessalonians came to faith, their reception of the gospel and thus their response Chapter 1, having turned to God from idols, happened in the context of tribulation. When they came to faith, it wasn't easy. Now for us, there's really not much pressure at times when one comes to faith. You may experience it more often in your family. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But you're going to experience an instant difference between you and those who you've been around who don't know Jesus Christ. And often that instant difference comes in the form of tribulation. So he says here, you turn to God from idols. He talks about that they turn to God from idols in the context of tribulation. And we'll see that that resulted later on in our passage in suffering. In suffering. The term tribulation back in chapter 1 speaks of uh, pressure or difficulty. He says much tribulation. There was heavy tribulation when they first initially received the word. There was heavy tribulation. Remember, Paul was run out of town. People, you know, I don't know if you've ever been run out of a place. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was. And as I mentioned earlier, when you come to faith, there's going to be temporal difficulties in this life because you immediately become an enemy of the God of this world. And everyone who doesn't know Christ is in the domain of darkness, whether they understand it or not, being held captive to do his will. You see, Satan's will for, for, for mankind is just to go on your own way, not to do God's will, not to repent and believe in Jesus and then to submit to him. Satan's will is to go your own way. And when you come to faith, there's an immediate division between you and those who do not know Jesus Christ. And sometimes that division brings about tribulation. Sometimes it brings about suffering. So he says, you became, verse chapter 1, verse 6, imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit. The tribulation is difficult, but if you're following the Lord, God through his spirit, by his word, gives us joy. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. It's, it's joy. When you see what God says concerning what's happening to you and what has happened to you in salvation, there comes joy even in the midst of those difficult situations. They received the word of God and they had joy. So then these Thessalonians became mimics of the Lord and real believers when they received the word initially when they got saved in the midst of heavy tribulation, with joy in the Holy Spirit. But yet, as we see in our passage, this tribulation and joy, when they came to faith, didn't the tribulation didn't stop. There was continual suffering afterwards for these Thessalonians, and it was an evidence that they actually had the Word working in their lives. Back to chapter 2, and I want to read through, again, verse 13 into our passage. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, 
which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators, or literally one who follows someone else's example. You became imitators, and notice what he says, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You became mimics, or one who follows an example, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He makes a clear, very clear distinction of who they became mimics of. He says it very clearly, the churches of God, that's God's church. The church speaks of the called out ones. It was a mystery that God brought forth after the day of Pentecost, where God, through his spirit, placed believers into the body of Christ, Jesus Christ being the head of the church. The term ecclesia means called out ones. We're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You became, he says, uh, imitators of the churches of God, God's church, in Christ Jesus. A lot of churches out there, the real ones are in Christ Jesus. They have a relationship with Christ. They're in Christ Jesus. And he says of that are in Judea. You became mimics. You became imitators of these called out ones of the church, God's church that's in Judea. That's in Israel, by the way. These are pagans. These were idolaters. These were Gentiles in Thessalonica. They had turned to God from idols. And now they have become mimics of those true believers in Israel that had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They had become imitators. And that becoming imitators was because the word was at work in them. For, he explains, you be, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God that are in Christ Jesus. For you also, notice what he says, endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You see, when you came to faith as a Jew in Israel, you were heavily persecuted. You experienced suffering as a Jew at the hands of those non-believing Jews. It's a pretty simple point he's making here. The word is working in you as evidenced by the suffering at the hands of your own people, the non-believing Thessalonians, just like Jewish believers suffered at the hands of their non-believing countrymen, the Jews. Now this phrase in the middle of verse 14, for you also endured the same sufferings, the term endured, the NASB has added that in there, it's not in the original language, but I believe it's translated that way because it does have that sense in there. But you could translate it this way. For you, brethren, became mimics or imitators of the churches of God in Judea that are in Christ Jesus that are in Judea because the same things you suffered. Because the same things you suffered. You suffered, Thessalonians, the same things those churches in Judea suffered when they came to faith, when the words working in them and thus obviously in you. Well, what did the Jewish believers suffer? that the Thessalonians did also. What did these Jewish believers suffer when they came to Jesus Christ? Well, obviously they were persecuted physically and verbally. 
Indeed, if we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus before he came to faith, we see him as a major persecutor. And from what he did, we can see how those Jews suffered when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. After giving the gospel and talking about Christ having uh, died for our sins and been buried and rose from the dead and appearing, he talks about who he appeared to. And he talks about uh, himself in light of the other apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, For I am, Paul writes, the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, that's the greatest sin. One of the greatest sins we see, obviously not trusting in Jesus is the worst, right? But see, he persecuted the church of God. He persecuted the church of God. Well, how did he persecute the church of God? How did Saul of Tarshish persecute Jewish believers when they came to faith in Jesus Christ in Judea? Turn to the book of Acts. We're going to look at a few passages in the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter 9 first, where we have the account of Saul of Tarsus' conversion. Acts chapter 9. And if there's too many passages and stuff, feel free just to take notes and just listen to me too. That's no problem. I'm saying turn here, turn there, you're all going like this and, you know, so, but uh, feel free to do either, alright? Acts chapter 9. Verse 1. Now Saul, that's Paul, before he was saved, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's pretty serious. You see, Saul was a Pharisee. And that meant he was in the government. It was a religious government at that time. So he was breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's those who trust in Jesus Christ, that's what they called it from the, the wrong side, okay? It was, he said here, both men and women, that he might bring them bound in Jerusalem. He was out hunting for believers, so that he could bring them in bound up. Acts chapter 9, verse 5, we see that what happened here, that when Jesus came to him, what did he say? He said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, all persecution is ultimately against Jesus. If you persecute the body of Christ, you're persecuting Jesus. And Saul was breathing threats of murder, and he was getting people when he had them bound and brought them back to Jerusalem. Turn up to uh, chapter 22 of Acts. And the way, sir, that's what they called it, but that's what it was called also in the early days. Uh, Acts 22, verses four, start at verse 4. Now the Apostle Paul is giving an account again of his life before coming to Christ and his conversion. Acts 22, verse 4. And I persecuted, that means to pursue, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Some people died, some people went into prison. Pretty serious. And also, as the high priest and all the council of the elders can, test, as elders can testify, for them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there 
to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Bound up people in Jerusalem, then went out looking for more. As prisoners to be punished. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you truly trusted in Jesus as a Jew at this time, you suffered under the hands of that religious uh, government, those wicked religious leaders. Look at Acts 26, verse 9. Acts 26, verse 9. And it may come here, brothers and sisters, we live in a relative peace. We are so blessed. We get bent out of shape if someone says the Lord's name in vain if they're a non-believer. Now, that's not good, but we're not being persecuted at all like this. Acts 26, verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. That's the mindset of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints of Nazareth, as, as this is just as... He says, saints in Naz, excuse me, and the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all their synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and to, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That's what it was like. They were suffering when they came to Jesus Christ. The Jews in Judea were suffering. Saul was pursuing them, putting them in prison and casting his vote that they would be killed and forcing them, trying to force them to blaspheme. Folks, that's physical persecution. And it's always aimed at God's true children. Indeed, in Stephen's sermon before he was stoned in Acts 7, he makes it clear that these Jews who were about to persecute him to death had put Christ to death, and they were no different than their fathers who had put the prophets to death. Acts chapter 7, back, and that'll be our last one in Acts for now. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen is about to be put to death. He says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. The religious Jews persecuted believers. We see that. Now the scripture reveals that not only is there a pursuit to, to hurt, um, to, to go against uh, believers physically speaking, there's also a pursuit verbally that, that is spoken of as persecution. In uh, Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, All thy commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me, the psalmist writes. We know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. It was read earlier. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And he is speaking to uh, Jews at this point. He has been giving the, a picture of what one who truly has a relationship with Christ looks like, one who is truly blessed He's been changed. He says in Matthew 5, verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you 
and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. So persecution takes a physical form when the restraints are off in the society. But when those restraints are not off, it's also we see in a physical form, which is there also when they are off. Takes a physical, takes a verbal form, excuse me. So we have hostile pursuit towards the body of Christ in Judea, persecuting Jesus ultimately, whether they know it or not, in a physical sense or a verbal sense. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to read what the writer of Hebrews shares, reminding them what happened to them when they came to faith. What happened when they trusted in Christ? Difficulty came. Difficulty came. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to look at verse 32. And he's trying to encourage them, by the way. But remember the former days after being enlightened. That's, that's mean they saw the light. They believed the truth. They understood they were sinners and they believed in Jesus. You endured a great conflict. This is written to Jews, by the way. Conflict of sufferings. You endured a great conflict of sufferings. He says, partially by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. By the way, prison ministry is based on this verse. Well, that's prisoners for trusting Jesus, by the way. Nothing wrong with sharing the gospel in prisons, but this context here is people who were believers who went to prison. He said here, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you had for yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you are in need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. They were suffering too. The Jews suffered. The Jews suffered. So back to our passage in Second or First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, for you, brethren, verse 14, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You suffered too, just like they did. They suffered at the hand of their Jewish countrymen. You suffered at the hands of your Gentile countrymen. Speaks of fellow uh, tribesmen, countrymen. And remember, the Apostle Paul shared with them that this was going to happen. And this suffering was an evidence for that the word was working in their lives. It comes right after saying the word that performs its work in you. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, they were concerned about them because they're suffering. New believers, you know, concerned about them, loved them. We thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. We, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as, so as to your faith or as to your faith so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. This is a new new church. They're under a year old. And he's saying, you know this, which implies he told them that when he was there. 
For indeed, while we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, certainly Paul suffered, but they were suffering too, and they were concerned about them. They were concerned about them. And folks, if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, actually, let's turn there. You'll see that that persecution didn't quite go away, but God had it under control. God had it under control, and they needed to be encouraged. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole portion. We're going to look at that a little later, but I want to read the beginning of it. Verse 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, excuse me, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and your love for each one of you towards toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your what? Perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and inflictions with you, which you endure. They went through trouble too. They went through trouble too. Remember what we saw in Matthew. Blessed are you that have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ and his word begins to work in you and you start to manifest his righteous character in your marriage, at your work, in the world, at church. When his character is manifest in you, not because you're being self-religious or righteous, but because his righteousness is manifest in you as you start to do what is right by his grace in a loving fashion, as he leads you, there's going to be persecution. He says, for the sake of righteousness, righteousness, he says, for theirs is the kingdom. You see, when you're being persecuted for doing what is right, it's an evidence that you're in the kingdom. When Christ is manifest in your life and the world persecutes you, it's an evidence, it's an evidence that his work, word is at work in you. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he reminds the, the, the believers there about how when they came to faith, the people that were around them start to malign them because they didn't do the things they used to do before they came to faith. You see, when we are genuinely saved, although tempted and sometimes falling, we're going to have a different attitude towards the behaviors we had before we came to Christ. And if that hasn't happened, I question whether you really got saved. We're going to have a different attitude toward it. Now, we are still tempted and we fail, but we're going to have a different viewpoint towards those behaviors. Actually, let's look at that. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. And it's an evidence when you are treated wrongly within those rights. Now, for us, sometimes it's in a family, sometimes it's in a marriage, whatever it might be. It's an evidence that Christ is being manifest in you. That the word is working in your heart. You're responding to his word as his spirit enables you to understand and you have a different viewpoint, a different attitude than different actions. First Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as, he explains it, to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. When you suffer, we, we recognize we don't want to sin anymore, right? We want to live for his will, right? We see that when we come to faith, too. 
so as to live the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued, that's in the past, a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And in all this, that's the way pagan culture was, but it sounds like our culture these days, uh, and all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them anymore in the same, into the same excess, dissipation. And they malign you. He says here, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's an evidence when you're suffering that you are, and look down a little farther, First Peter 4.12 that you are a true believer. I'm not saying we suffer all the time. We suffer all the time. That would be pretty horrible, right? Some do, but it's not all the time. But we do encounter it. We do encounter it. 1 Peter 4.12, it's an evidence. Beloved, these are believers, do not be surprised or amazed at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing or proving your genuine faith. Proof means proving. As some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Verse 14, notice this. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because something's true about you. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're a true believer. You're a true believer. It's an evidence you see, if we desire to live godly, we will be persecuted. We have that in First Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. But why will we be persecuted? Why doesn't the world just say, you're okay with your Jesus and I'm okay with my whatever it is? Why does the world hate Jesus? Turn to John chapter 15. We learned earlier in John chapter 3, but I'll mention that, but John 15 is returning there, that the world doesn't want to come to Jesus because their sin is exposed. Their sin is exposed. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus says, you know that it hated me before it hated you. There you go. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. They'd love you. That's why worldly churches love worldly people, and they love each other, and they don't talk about Jesus at all in terms of truly sharing his word. It's about you rather than him. Would love its own because you are not, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Because they don't have a relationship with the living God, they're going to persecute those who are of Christ. They're going to hate you. It's hard to understand. It's hard to, hard to grasp at times because we want people to like us. Boy, isn't that the way we are? We want everybody to like us, right? <laughs> But the reality is the Lord gives us knowledge here that the world's not going to like us. 
Now, they may like us for different reasons or whatever it might be, but ultimately they hate Christ. And if the world loves you, brother and sister, everybody that doesn't know Christ loves you. Uh, be, be, be concerned about that. Jesus said in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Be careful. If everybody loves you, maybe Christ isn't manifest in your life. I'm not saying being a jerk or anything. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being a godly person in which Christ's word is being manifest in your life, which will cause those who are not of him to bring about persecution at times. So then, suffering is an evidence of salvation and, as we see here, an evidence that the word of God is at work in you. He says, the word of God which performs its work in you believe, for, for, you had the same sufferings from your countrymen as they did in Judea from theirs. The word's at work in you. The word has changed you. You no longer worship idols. You no longer party it up. You no longer do what they did. You trust Jesus and you obey Jesus. And they don't understand. But we pray that they would, that they would come to faith. But right now there's a wall, there's a dividing wall. There's a dividing wall. One pastor writes, persecution is one of the surest, most tangible evidences of salvation. Persecution is not incidental to faithful Christian living, but certainly an evidence of it. The reality is if you've come to faith, there's going to be times, not always, there's going to be times where you are persecuted, you, are, you suffer because the word is at work in you. Maybe it's in a marriage. You're doing what is right. You're loving your wife. You're loving your husband. Whatever it might be, you're going to suffer at times for doing what's right. Maybe it's at work. You're, you're not doing the things that are wrong, but you're still a good worker. You're submitting to your boss. You're submitting, doing your work hardly unto the Lord. Maybe you're suffering for that. Maybe it's in the church from those who don't know the Lord. We'll see at times it's hard to take it, but often those who persecute are those who name the name of the Lord. We'll see that later. Suffering is an evidence that the word is at work. Now those who come to faith, maybe come to faith, but haven't really come to faith, we'll see in the parable of the sower that when persecution hits, they fall away right away. Jesus shares the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, 21. He says, that soil, that seed that fell on rocky ground, he says, who immediately fall away when persecution arose because of the word. The word. But these Thessalonians were enduring. It's an encouragement. It's an encouragement when things are not so good to know that that's actually okay. It's part of this temporal sufferings for the glories to follow. Not that we're causing it to not be good, but when it's not good because we're following Jesus. It's an encouragement. It's an encouragement. First Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter says, be of sober spirit. And we'll see later on, next time in our, our look, that Satan's involved in a lot of this persecution, probably all of it, obviously. He says here, be of sober spirit, 5.8, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, or literally the faith. He says here, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren around the world. They're experiencing the same thing. And he says, and after you have suffered, this is very encouraging, after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, this is personally, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says to him be dominion forever and ever. He's going to take care of the bad guys, as we'll see. He's going to confirm, perfect, and establish you. He's going to do good through it. So back to our passage, just an evidence that the word's in work, working. Middle of verse 13. But for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now at this point, the Apostle Paul gives us more insight into that suffering. He's going to explain about those persecutors in Judea. He's not going to talk about the ones in Thessalonica. He's going to talk about the ones in Judea, what they did. And it gives us a picture, an insight to even more to what they did. Verse 15, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. He clearly lays the blame for the Jews on the Jews for killing the Lord Jesus. And there's an interesting grammatical phenomenon here where uh, in Greek, the word killed is placed in between the Lord and Jesus and both refers to both of them. It's kind of an interesting emphasis. They killed the Lord and they also killed Jesus. Same thing, the Lord Jesus. They killed, they put to death God who took on human flesh. They put to death God who took on human flesh. So then, we see in Scripture that God makes it clear through, through Peter and Stephen that these Jews were responsible for uh, delivering Jesus to the cross. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, that would be the Romans, and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And we see also, Stephen talks about, and we read it earlier, where he said they killed the one who announced, the ones who announced the, the, the righteous one. And he said, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. That was the Jews. Through God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, he allowed evil men to deliver up Jesus Christ to the cross to die for our sins. And if they would have understood, if they would have had understood God's wisdom from his word, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2. Persecution is ultimately aimed at Christ. We saw that in Matthew chapter 5, on account of me. We saw it in John 15. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Slaves not greater than his master, right? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So they killed the Lord Jesus, but not only do they do that, they, they kill those or they persecute those who give out the word. Verse 15, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. In the Old Testament, if you follow the Old Testament, you'll see that Israel was not a believing nation by and large. There was only a remnant 
They killed, they persecuted, they were evil, they were wicked, they were expelled because of that out of the land. They were brought back in, got rid of idols, but now it was all legalism and, and, and self-righteousness. And then they crucified the Lord of glory. They killed the prophets. Stephen says that also in Acts chapter 7. Which of those did you not kill? You know, you killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one. You killed them. And then here Paul says, and puts the blame on them too, and drove us out. It was the Jews that drove them out of Thessalonica. It was the Jews, the Jews that were chasing them around, persecuting the apostle Paul. And on a side note, we see here, first of all, they persecute heavily those who bring forth the word of God. But certainly, body of Christ, all of us get persecuted, all of us suffer, but they persecute specifically those who bring forth the word of God. So pray for me, okay? Pray for me. But notice what he says. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. I find that's a weird statement. Why would he have to say they're not pleasing to God when they killed Jesus and they killed the prophets? Why would he need to say that? It seems obvious to us, right? Well, the reality is they portray themselves to be those who are pleasing to God. They portray themselves to be those who are following the Lord. That's why he says it. They're not pleasing to God. They portray themselves to be that way. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 very clearly that those men were false apostles, not those ones, but the ones tempting the, the, the Corinthians, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He says in chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. They disguise themselves. They pretend, pretend to be those who are pleasing to God, but they're not pleasing to God. Turn to Titus chapter 1. In the context of the requirements for elders, which one is to exhort and refute in sound doctrine for a purpose, to shut down and silence the contradictors and those who teach the wrong thing. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision, that was Jews at that time, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for sordid gain. Now, the, he goes on to explain that and then to reprove those who listen to them. But look at verse 15, Titus 1. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Notice what he says here, verse 16, very important. They profess to know God. But their deeds, by their deeds, they deny him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. They're not pleasing to God. They profess to be pleasing to God. They profess to know God. One later passage that's really important, Second Timothy. Paul's last words, he's warning Timothy. Timothy, everything he does is a contrast. This stuff, all this junk, stay in the word, Timothy. This junk, stay in the word, Timothy. This junk, stay in the word, Timothy. That's all 2 Timothy is about, we see. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read this, starting at verse 1. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
boastful, arrogant, reviolent, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You think, wow, I could spot that guy in a second, right? Notice what he says. Holding to a form of godliness. There's a cover for all that wickedness. And he's going to talk about these false guys. Evil men and imposters, that's what he's talking about. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And he goes on to explain them, how bad they are. And he he says, but Timothy, you follow the word of God. You follow what you were taught. But verse 13, he says, but in evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul says they're not pleasing to God. These guys are not pleasing They put on like they are the Lord's. They're not. They're not. But notice what he says back in our passage. But they are hostile to all men. The term hostile literally means opposite. Being against. The Jews killed the Lord Jesus, the prophets, and drove out Paul. They're not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all men. And why are they hostile to the human race? Because God desires all men to be saved. God's a gracious God who wants people to be saved. And it's through the message that points to Jesus Christ, the one who brings forgiveness of sins, that we find salvation. They're hostile to all men. Notice what he says. Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Very interesting portion. God has ordained the means in which salvation comes. If the word doesn't go out, people don't get saved. Hindering, stopping us from, he says, speaking to the Gentiles, context would be the gospel, that they might be saved. Here we see a paradigm of persecution. Having killed the prophets and Jesus, driving out Paul and his companions, ultimately they hinder them from speaking the gospel. And that was to Gentiles here, to non-Jews, that they might be saved. Those who persecute hinder the proclamation of the word of God by hindering those who proclaim it, by the way. That's Satan's uh, angle, is to get rid of those who are proclaiming it so that it doesn't go out. Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, Paul says. You see, we need to recognize it's through the truth of the gospel that proclaim that people hear the truth concerning a Savior and one's need for a Savior and then salvation. In Romans chapter 1, we see that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel. God has ordained that means. It's not some act of regeneration beforehand that we're saved. No, we're saved when God takes his alive gospel concerning Jesus Christ, changes our hearts, and we turn to him from our sin for salvation, calling upon him. In James chapter 1, we see that in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We're to set aside all filthiness and all wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. In 1 Peter chapter 1.23, talks about we've been born again through the living and abiding word of God, that word which was preached to you. And one last passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll read it for you, verse 14. 
bad guys here, Timothy, but you, however, he says, continue in the things that you've learned. That's the word of God. Being convinced of and knowing from where you heard them. And that from childhood, you have good parents, good grandma and mom, by the way. You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God. God's word gives us the wisdom from God to understand the truth of our need of Jesus Christ for salvation from sins. So then, they're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering, Paul says, them from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Be saved. So then, we see the characteristic of these bad guys. And notice he says in verse 16, with the result, middle of verse 16, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. This is pretty serious. God is allowing them to sin to the max. You know, God is patient. He's gracious, giving every man a chance to repent. He permits sin to run its course for the sake of salvation and for those who would be saved. But there comes a time when his patience runs out, where one's sin is maxed out, filled to the brim. And these Jewish persecutors had reached that point as they persecute those who are sharing the gospel. And notice end of verse 16, he says, but wrath and contrast has come upon them to the utmost. Their doom is sure. Here Paul declares the eternally terrifying result of the wickedness of these Jews who had killed the prophets, put Jesus to death, and drove out Paul and muzzled the gospel. The characteristic of the same people persecuting these these, uh, Thessalonians, but of their own people. He says it speaks of his wrath continually on them. Wrath has come upon them now, or it's on them to the utmost. God's wrath was at its peak. So don't worry about them. They're not going to get away with it. Don't worry about those who are out there. God's got it under control. He's got it under control. Now I want to read First, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, because we see that no one gets away with their persecution. They don't get away with it. Now, we want those who persecute us to come to faith, and God's patient, giving them time. We pray for that, but ultimately they don't. Paul came to faith, right? He persecuted the church. We pray that they do. Second Thessalonians 1.3 We all ought always give thanks to you, thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and your love for each one, love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for indeed, which indeed you are suffering, suffering for the kingdom. For after, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these, listen to this, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, 
and to be marveled among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. It's going to take care of it. Wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Let God take care of it. He will take care of it. He will take care of it. God doesn't cause evil, but he allows it to happen and he uses it for good. The greatest good, Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Remember what, uh, remember what uh, Joseph said to his brothers? You meant it for evil. That's the reality of it. But God meant it for good, the saving of this people. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good. And we see even in the midst of the suffering for following Christ, God is using that right now. He's using it now. He uses it to test our faith and strengthen it. 1 Peter 1, Luke 22, 31 and 32. He uses it to bring his word out and to spread it. Acts 8, 1 through 4. He uses it to make us like Christ. James 1, Romans 5 and Romans 8, 28 and 8, 29. So it comes full circle. It's an evidence, persecution, that God's word is working in us when we suffer for Christ. And he uses that same suffering to bless us and make us more like Christ. And then we are eternally rewarded for that suffering. So, brother and sister, let me ask you this. Is God's word at work in you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth and that even though we do suffer temporarily, there are the glories to follow. And I pray that every true believer in here who is suffering even right now for doing what is right would be encouraged, would be blessed by the truth that they're right on course for glory. And Lord, I pray for those here who name the name of your son but maybe don't know you as evidenced by never ever having any difficulty or conflict for obeying you because they really don't. I pray they would come to faith. But for those of us who are saved, may we be encouraged that our faith would be strengthened in the midst of this temporal suffering for following your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.